Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class here at St. Paul's. Of course, welcome to all, who, all of you joining us here in the gym. And then also welcome to all those online, kfuo.org or on the air, KFUO radio. My name is Pastor Kevin Thompson. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us this new day. That you have woken us up this morning so that we can serve you in this world. This world which you so preciously created. We pray now, Lord, as we gather to study your holy word, that you would move inside each and every one of our hearts, your Holy Spirit, so that we may be strengthened in faith, that we may, be, that we may learn and we get to ultimately then share this faith and this learning with other people. Lord, we pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. I sound okay or am I too loud? We good? Okay, no one saying anything mostly, so we're good. Okay, great. So, all right. I'm very excited to be here with you studying. As always, we look at the lectionary readings for next weekend. So, as always, for, if you are here in person, there is a printout. It's just literally the Bible readings put on a piece of paper if you like to write on, on that paper or have them all together. But our first reading we're going to look at is Ezekiel chapter 33. Verses 7 through 20. So let's just begin by reading through that. Ezekiel 33, verse 7 through 20. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, Give back what he has taken by robbery and walks in the statutes of life. Not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just. When it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice... He shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you in his ways. Here ends our reading for next week. Albeit a long reading, I, I find great value that we first just hear the whole um, section of God's word for us. So as we get into this a little bit more to understand it, it's actually, well, of course it's fitting for, for Lent because those who put it together, a sign lectionary, uh, did so for a reason. But so much of it is pretty clear at first read that you can see where we're going. It's talking about wickedness and righteousness and repenting. So it's pretty clear why we have this as one of our readings in Lent. But let's look a little bit more at this. If we look in Ezekiel chapter 33, just a reminder, Ezekiel being a prophet of God. And so Ezekiel, but prior to this, had been primarily been saying most of his words to the other nations, the other people in the lands, not the people of God. 
It's because we're going to see a switch here that most of our reading from verse 10 on is when he's primarily addressing the people of Israel, God's people. But prior to that, our reading starts here at verse 7. Okay, so in, this, in these verses 7 through 9 and verses prior, Israel was, or Ezekiel was speaking to these other nations. And primarily, his goal of declaring God's word to them was to turn the wicked from their wicked ways. To preach to them and tell them the word of God, tell them what God would do and what God has come to do, so they would turn from their wicked ways and instead repent and turn towards their Lord. So there we get especially that key word for Lent, repent. Well, that rhymed. That's kind of funny. I didn't plan that at all. Okay, so we get this. And in the beginning here, verse 7, so you son of man... Just a brief reminder, because we're jumping into Ezekiel here. This reference, son of man, is referring to Ezekiel. We could almost read this if we wanted to. So you, Ezekiel, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. There's reasons why I think we wouldn't read that explicitly that way. But son of man is a reference that God uses throughout the entire book of Ezekiel to refer to him. It's interesting, one commentary said there was 93 references to Ezekiel. And of those 93, it doesn't say his name. Refers to him as son of man. Okay? So we know that this is God referring to Ezekiel. And so he's talking to him. He says, you, O son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Which again reminds us of who is Ezekiel or more, more, what is his purpose? It's not like he's just coming to this role and he's there to tell people, repent, you're terrible people. He's there on behalf of God. He was, as it says, appointed by God. God has made him watchman for the house of Israel. Okay? So he's the watchman. Let's think about this term a little bit. When you think of watchman, what do you think of? I don't think we use this a whole lot today necessarily, but what do you think of when you hear the word watchman? You literally have the two. Go ahead, Nancy. A guard? Yeah. Think about it. I mean, in some ways, it's just literal. You have a watchman, separate those two words, a man who watches. No, we're not going to get too gender specific because there's some other applications here, okay? But ultimately, you have someone who's like a guard who's watching out for the others. Because this really originated with, as a military metaphor. That's why, as, as Nancy suggests here, a guard. Because the, the watchman was part of the military watching out for the enemies. So then, if, shall, they, shall they see them and come, warn the people of the coming um, enemy. But this term watchman is often applied to the prophets. Clearly, right, directly here applied to Ezekiel, and for good reason, because they're not necessarily military watchmen, but here now we have more spiritual watchmen. Ezekiel is called by God to declare God's words to the people, and especially here, tell them, repent of your wicked ways, turn from this wicked stuff, for lack of better terms, and instead go to God. Watch out for this wicked stuff for the people. Tell the people of this stuff that's over here, this enemies, the things that are opposed to God, so they can be kept safe in God. They can repent and turn to Him. Be with Him where He will keep them safe, where He will keep them in the ways that they ought to walk. Now, here's where we go into a little bit more. So it talks here about Ezekiel being the watchman. In the Old Testament, a lot, most oftentimes, refers used with prophets. But if you look at the New Testament, this term watchman oftentimes is applied to all Christians. How we as all Christians, on behalf of God, are sent out into this world so that we too can be watchmen for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we haven't gotten to the, to the meat of what Ezekiel is sent to declare here. But if you think about it as Christians, aren't we very much as watchmen to watch out for the wicked ways so we can tell our brothers and sisters, you know, Warn them of those wicked ways and what that will do if they persist in those things. Instead, tell them, hey, this is, what God, this is who God is. God doesn't want you to do these things. Instead, turn towards him. Now, be careful. I'm not deputizing you to all go out and to just tell everyone you're sinful, horrible people. Not go, telling you to go out and just to say, okay, you're wrong, you're wicked, this, that, and the other thing. Okay? Because there's a lot more context here. That ultimately, as watchmen on behalf of God, we're to do so as he calls us. And this is the key here. God here says to Ezekiel, I've made you watchmen. And then throughout the rest of this passage, all these other verses, God is making clear it's his word through Ezekiel. It's not just Ezekiel saying whatever he feels like. This is God's word. So, Ezekiel verses 7 through 9 can seem rather um, difficult in part. But if we look at it in verse 9, 
Again, it says, but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, and you will have delivered your soul. So this term, delivering your soul, is ultimately a reference to, del- to giving life, to delivering into life. But reading verse 9 and then the ones prior, it seems like there's a lot of weight put on Ezekiel. In part, there is. Ezekiel has a serious task. He's sent by God to the people to declare God's word. And so if he neglects to do this task, neglects to share God's word, there are serious consequences here. Now, I don't want you to hear this as a burden, that if you go out and you tell people what God has done for them, and you're sharing God's word for them, then they decide to do their others. It's not going to come back on you like God's going to directly punish you. I think sometimes that can be misread here. People see, well, Ezekiel told, you know, didn't do this or that. And do what we need to see here is God says simply the importance of his servant going out to declare his word. Let God's word work. Because God's word will work. God's word is powerful. And will some hear the word of God and not repent? Possibly. Yes, they have. But that's not on us. It's our responsibility. Now, I know I'm kind of jumping out of Ezekiel here. But it's our responsibility to share the word of God in its truth and its sincerity and in love. And let his word work. But I get too far out of the Old Testament. Let's, let's dive more here specifically into Ezekiel before I get, get too application to us today. Okay, so he's got this serious role. And he is sent to the people. And now we get into verses 10 through 20, and we have Ezekiel very clearly, again, I state this, that he is sharing God's word with the people. And there's a few things, three, three key things that we can see about God's word throughout this section. One, that God's word is effective. His word remains effective. I've already alluded to this, but the point is is that God's word always works. It always does what it says it will do. It always accomplishes that purpose for which it is sent. So one, we'll see throughout this that God's word remains effective. Second thing we're going to see in here is that God's word, especially the law within his word, causes despair in sinful hearts. Which ultimately should lead them to repentance, but we'll get to that more in a little bit. And then the third thing, but... God's word doesn't just leave people in despair. God, the third thing is that God's word reaches out with the life-giving power of the gospel. The gospel, that is, that God desires to absolve the sinners of their sins and create new life, to, re- to deliver their souls. So three key things you can see throughout this passage. God's word is effective. God's word, the law, will strike a sinner to despair, causing them to repent. And the third, that God's word also brings the beautiful gospel to absolve the sinners and bring them back and give them new life. All right, so let's look at verse 10. Verse 10, you son of man, say to the house of Israel. So again, Ezekiel talking specifically to God's people more so than he was before. Thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? So Ezekiel's come to them, he shared the word of God, and this is their response. This is the people's response. Our transgressions and our sins are upon us. We rot away because of them. How then can we live? This is, I think, a key passage where oftentimes when we read this, we don't necessarily get to hear the things, the inflections and the tones of which the people, but can you imagine that? Imagine possibly what people are thinking and feeling as they say this. Hear the words they say, our sins are upon us. They feel their sins. They know their sins. The law has clearly convicted them of their wrongdoings and their sins, and it's upon them. Look at their words. Okay, it's not just, we, we sinned, we did wrong. Look how, how the strength of their words. We rot away because of them. Because of our sins, we rot away. How then can we live? Now, if you were to think... Of other words in our English language to describe how they're feeling, what words might you use? How would you describe their feelings? I mean, they say they rot away, they feel their sins. What words might you use to describe how they're feeling? Stressed, okay. Desperate. Any others? In anguish. 
possibly even depressed. And here's where, with caution, we'll go with this, we'll talk about it more, in despair. Possibly despair. Because think about how you feel when you're convicted of your sins. Are those not some of the things, when you think of your sins, you think of your stress, you're desperate, you feel anguish. Sometimes it leaves you feeling depressed, possibly even despair, but again, I want to get to that because what does the word despair mean in our English dictionary? Anyone know? Do you have any, any uh, English or literature folks? No? What's that? Without hope. Exactly. So I looked it up on Merriam-Webster Dictionary to get our clear and concise, which you're right on track. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary says despair is defined as utter loss of hope. Utter loss of hope. And so if the law drives people to convict them of their sins and drive them to despair, that ultimately can lead to an utter loss of hope. Now, here's where I want us to think about where it could be a bit of a challenge. I would encourage us to think that maybe we don't go to despair all on its own. Because do we ever lose true hope? I don't think so. Because we have God's word. God's word, the law drives us to our sins and drives us to see where we're wrong and convicts us of our sins. We even use in our theological terminology that the law kills and the gospel makes alive. But... If we see this, I don't want you to see it as simply that, well, whenever I hear the law, I'm going to be driven to despair, and I have no hope, and there I am, and there I sit. Because that's not the end of God's word, is my key point here. God's word doesn't just drive the sinner to despair and leave him there in complete and utter hope. But rather, his word is all-encompassing. You can't separate law from gospel. You have to take them together. God's word has both in it. And so remember that when his, even though his law convicts us, the law kills the sinner, bringing the sinner to despair, the sinner also still has God's word, which as I said, that third point for us today is that it brings the gospel. So I don't want to cheapen the law by saying that the, the law is okay, it's, you know, it'll be okay, you're going to get convicted, but it'll be okay. We, there's serious conviction there. The sin is upon us. We rot away because of our sin. And in that despair, God then gets to reach out with his beautiful gospel And say, yes, on your own you are a sinner. On your own you do rot away. But you're not alone. I'm here. I've sent my son for you. I've come to to redeem you. I've come to deliver your soul. And therein lies the reason why they spend so much time at the seminary teaching us proper distinction between law and gospel. Okay? We need to make sure we keep these things straight and in and, and, and tension together. But we see here in this verse 10, it's a pretty striking law. They're truly convicted of their sins. Which, if we think about here in Lent, I mean, Lent, we spend so much time focusing on our, the repentance for our sins. Because we look, Lent, we have Good Friday coming to the near, near end of it. And so in part, why, this is why it's such a fitting reading, because drive us to convict us of our sins. Then verse 11 Let's look at that a little bit closer. So he says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. So clear, this is the word of God. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is God speaking again. He says, I have no pleasure in the wicked Uh, the death of the wicked. And here we have a clear statement of of who our God is. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Does this possibly sound contrary to what many people in this world might think about God? That many people in this world might think our God is a God who likes to strike down people, that our God takes pleasure and delight in striking down sinners? I think it does. I think you might hear people in this world who say, well, why, why would God allow those things? He's horrible. Why would God tell you of your sin is so wrong and convicted? And why would God say such harsh words about sin? Why would God be so harsh? Well, but here we have it clearly stated by God himself. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But what does he desire? That second half of the first part of the verse, that the wicked man turn from his way and live. God feels so strongly. He hates sin. He wants sin to be punished, sin to have experienced death. 
But not just to delight in that, but rather so that then he can bring life. Which is why we do have hope even when we come to utter despair because of our sins. That our God doesn't want us to feel that despair just so that he can revel in it. But rather so that he can bring life. So he can have us turn from those ways and instead to him. Okay. Verse 12 through 20, we're going to kind of take this as a larger section. Because if you look through 12 through 20, I encourage you again to read through it when you leave class. At some time, maybe today, this afternoon, maybe later this week. Because if you read verses 12 through 20 at first, I'm just going to admit, I think it was a little confusing. I think you need to take it slow and just slow down because he goes back and forth between righteous and unrighteous like five, six different times. But if you look in this, he's using clear logic. Okay, he makes it, God makes it clear that what happens in the case of the righteous and the unrighteousness. That God does not delight in unrighteousness, but desires them to turn and repent towards him. And the other thing that he makes extremely clear in these verses is that God, that those who turn and are righteous aren't just doing so on their own will. They're not doing it by their own power, but it's rather God who works in them so that they can do what is just and right. And it's not, and sorry, as I say that, it's not explicitly stated God is the one who turns the unrighteous from uh, his unrighteous ways. But if you take time to continually read through those verses and reread them and reread them again, you'll see God makes it clear that he is the one that is at work in and through behind all of these things. That through Ezekiel, God is working to turn the people from their wicked ways and instead to him. Because God's the one who's in control, which take us, takes us to verse 20. Let's read verse 20 again. God's, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. That's what the people claim. The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I, God, will judge each of you according to his ways. That God is the one who's the judge. So who's our God? Our God is a just God. He desires to punish sin. Our God is also a God of love. And our God is the one who is the judge. He's the one, as it says right here at the end, that will judge each according to his ways. Which is where we come back to the beginning. Ezekiel sent to declare the word of the Lord to him. His responsibility, his serious task ahead of him is to declare this word in its truth and in love. So they would hear it, so they would turn and repent and come to God instead. And maybe some won't. But those will face judgment by God. God is the judge, which there it goes to then us. We go out as watchmen into this world, watch men, watch women, you know, all ages. And we declare God's word. We get to share God's word with people in love and in truth. And we pray that it moves them, that it would turn, help them to turn and repent. But ultimately, we get to trust and rely on that God's the judge. He's the one that will judge each according to their ways. So let's focus, not to be too egocentric, but focus on ourselves. How can, we folk, how can we grow in our faith? How can we trust in the word of the Lord? Because ultimately, God's not going to judge each and every one on their own way. We're not the judges. So we're not sent out to be little judges running around the world telling you sin, you sin, you sin. We focus on ourselves. Where have we done wrong? As the saying goes from the scripture, get the log out of our own eye before we go get the speck out of our neighbor's. Any questions or thoughts on... Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 33 for next week. As I said, pretty explicit on repent, turn to the Lord. And we're going to see that all throughout the readings, very, very clear. But I want to make one last thing clear before we turn to 1 Corinthians. What is the goal of all this? The goal is life, that their soul be delivered. That is the goal of what God is doing through sharing his word. And he's um, declaring such wickedness and unrighteousness. So they turn, repent, and have life in him. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Our epistle lesson for next Sunday is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And I'll read those for us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 13. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Here ends our epistle for next week. So, just a brief amount of context because we're shifting from Ezekiel. Uh, so 1 Corinthians, remember, a letter written by Paul to the church here in Corinth. And as is said, I think sometimes a lot, um, there were quite many problems in the church in Corinth. And especially as we've looked at in the preceding weeks here in this Bible class, one of the most uh, significant challenges in Corinth were divisions. Divisions amongst the people within the church themselves. But we haven't quite gotten to that here in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is, primar- is prior to that large section on the divisions experienced in the Corinthian church. But chapter 10 here, we have Paul writing to them to warning, as it says in the subtitle, warning against idolatry. Do not be as your fathers were, but rather to walk in the way of God. So we get into this. Look for, first at the verse, first five verses. First five verses, there are multiple places in which it points back to the Old Testament. Back to Old Testament history. This is going to be a theme for, for our study of this, this reading today. Old Test- knowing the Old Testament Scriptures is essential and, and just only increases your ability to truly understand what Paul is saying here to the Corinthian churches. So here we have a very clear example of Scripture is one united body of God's Word together and one uh, Word of God that we should read in its entirety throughout the rest of our lives. But, excuse my commercial there to continue reading God's Word. So first five verses, we have Old Testament history. We have in the first verse, you know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So referring to fathers, talking about our, our, our ancestors, those who came before us. They were under the cloud. And this cloud is a reference, uh, calling in the people's minds, the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites. As the Israelites were traveling, wandering throughout the wilderness, the pillar of cloud that guided them, and the pillar of fire that also guided them by night. So we have one reference there. All under the cloud and all pass through the sea. Here reference to the crossing of the Red Sea. And then you go, they were all baptized in verse 2. Baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so here you have that. They're baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Emerging this new people. Especially we talk about baptism and language. With, used with baptism is, is always this making new. Well, here Paul uses this word, baptizing to Moses, referring back to, look how, as God was working through them in that Old Testament history, he made them new, baptizing them through the cloud and the sea. Side note, this is not making some new baptism thing up, okay? This is just Paul's use of language to um, recall within the Corinthians the history of their people, the history of God's people. And ultimately, look through in just those first two short verses, God shows very clearly he was with his people, he took care of them, he provided for them, and especially we get that, especially with that baptismal um, language, he delivered them, making them new, delivering them, which this whole repentance, when we repent, we go to God, he makes us new and cleanses us. But I get ahead. So, we look at this, and then again in verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And, then, and for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. They had the same spiritual food and drink. God was the one who was the source, the one providing for them. Okay? And we can also think about this. Now, it's not, I don't want to draw a direct correlation, but think about if, you're, if Paul's writing this, and he's already recalling all this Old Testament history 
of how God provided for them, and you hear food and drink, I think it's also likely that that would recall in the minds of the hearers the manna that God provided for them as they're wandering in the wilderness. That God provided even the physical things that they needed miraculously for them. And then also the water, you can, it recalls in our minds that in, as they continue to wander in the wilderness, he provided water when there seemed to be none around. Water from the rock as Moses struck the rock with his staff. Okay, so I don't think those are necessarily direct correlatives here. But I think if, at least I think of them, I think many of you are possibly recalling them. And especially I think the Corinthians would recall these more other parts of what God had done, has done for his people. He, he's establishing clear, he's been with his, the fathers, the people before. And he's delivered them. And then it gets so clearly, and they drank from the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. We use that terminology, I think, often in our church, uh, churches today, the rock of Christ, the solid ground on which I stand, right? And they, right, which one, which one is that, Mark? Can I call on you? On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Which one, him? And, my hope is built on nothing less. Can part, quote parts of the words, I just can't get the whole titles. Okay, so we know this familiarity, right? It's familiar to us. And yet it's, it might sound strange. Okay, so Paul's looking at Old Testament here. He's talking about the people and calling them, they wandered. And yet he's talking about the rock of Christ. He's like, wait, Jesus wasn't there, but he was. Here's a, a, a great part of scripture to look at the fact that Christ was always present. He's one with God. I was just talking with someone about this recently. As someone was, is very, I mean, very new to Christianity. She just recently heard, like, just recently received a Bible. And it was really cool. We were talking about some stuff together. We were talking about God's word and the like. And she says, now, what's this Trinity thing? I said, let's wait on that a little bit longer. But let me give you a quick version because we're just starting basics here. But I said, one of the common things, you think of this Trinity, we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet they're one God. And they've always been together as one God forever. Now we have the person of Jesus Christ didn't come into the flesh until later in the New Testament. And yet Christ was always present. He always was, always is, and always will be. And so, yes, clearly we state here that they drank from the rock, the rock which was Christ. And so I think we can also see a quick application to ourselves today as we look through these first few verses. God is providing for, for his people all throughout their time, all throughout history, and he's still doing that today. And Christ is still the rock from which we are to, to drink their spiritual nourishment. Christ is still the rock to which we should go, on which our hope should be built and nothing else. So then we get, take a switch here in verse 5. seems kind of abrupt if, you, if you're reading through. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. But they were overthrown in the wilderness. So then here we start to get that look at the fact that God wasn't pleased. And we know, or if we know the history of scriptures, we can say he wasn't pleased because look at the wickedness and the things that they did. Think of the countless ways they sinned against God in the wilderness. But as we see here in verse 5, there's an interesting switch. Okay, in, in the first four verses, it's, taught, it's, it's referring to the people as all of them. All of them God provided for. Okay, all were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. You see this word, all, that's used. And yet then in verse 5, you switch to most. doesn't say all, but most. So with all of them, God was providing, and God was there, and God was giving them the very means that they needed. And yet, with most, he was not pleased. Which means there are some with whom he was pleased. And so from this, we can look at and see that, one, God's providing for all people. We get back, God is a God of love who does desire to and does provide for all people. But he's not pleased with all people. And that's where we get into our themes of judgment. He's not pleased with sin. He's not pleased with those who stick in their sin and don't repent and don't turn from it. And those who repent and turn to him, those who he is well pleased with, and he, gets to, and he delivers their soul. And so here, I just wanted to see that this switch from all, that God is providing all, but those who stick in their sin and do not repent and turn to him, terribly unpleased with. Okay. So verse 6 and then on in a couple others, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then it's again in verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example. 
but they were written down for our instruction. And so um, it says very clearly these things are an example. But one caution is as you're reading that, but this is not like it's just an example. These things really did happen. There is, there is purpose to what happened, and God was with his people. They truly happened. And yet, can't we learn from what truly did happen, and then therefore they be an example? See, we want to be careful when we see scripture as like, okay, it's just an example for me that I can try to learn from. Well, but one, it's real stuff that happened. Real work God did in and through his people throughout all of their lives and through all of history. But it does get to serve as an example for us. And verse 11 makes it very clear. An example for us, for our instruction. So that God could build us up, so that God could lead us to not desire evil as our fathers did in many times and ways, but rather turn to Him. We see so often in Scripture, we can, we can look at it, and like, oh, well, they were evil, they did those terrible things. I don't do that. Not that bad. Yet look at it. We get a recounting of not just what God did, but also recalls in memory what the people did, their wickedness as God guided them throughout the wilderness. Maybe we didn't do exactly those same things, but maybe there's something parallel in our lives, something that is against God's will, something that is sinful. And how did God react to them? One, he provided for them, but he told them of their sin so that they would repent and turn to him. Much the same in our lives, God tells us of our sin. We may not like to hear it. He tells us of our sins so that we too can repent and turn towards him. So, if we continue on a little bit more here, and then we'll switch to our last reading. Um, verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. Uh, we get a reference towards that golden calf incident. And then in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, who, who for that... For whom did that just jump out at you? Like, wait, where did these 23,000 come from? Right? It stuck out to me at first when I was reading it, but there's a reference again. If you turn to Numbers chapter 25, which uh, we're not necessarily going to do right now, but Numbers 25 talks about the specific incident that's referenced. And in Numbers 25, it talks about a seriously harsh punishment for those who, were, who yoked themselves with idols. Those who were just pursuing after idolatrous things. Things completely contrary to God. Now, again, this isn't God just going out saying, I'm going to just strike people down because that's who I am. Not at all. God had warned the people. They knew what was wrong. They knew they shouldn't pursue these other things, these other things that would never truly provide for them in any way near what God could and wanted to do. And yet they pursued these idols. They yoked themselves to these idolatrous ways. There was seriously harsh punishment. 23,000 fell in a single day. And that is harsh. That's how serious God is about sin. Okay. And then, um, I can't find it. But anyways, uh, so then verse 9, don't put yourself, uh, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Here again, another reference to Old Testament, sinning against God. Okay. And here we have, not, must not put Christ to the test, which is another reference to that sinning against God is sinning against Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father because they are three in one. Okay, so it's not like Paul is just jumping around here. It's sinning against all three persons because they are one true God. Now we need to have ample time for this. Here we get to this most commonly, I think this is, I didn't Google it this time. I think I've Googled it before. Verse 13, I think is Google, if you check Google, is the most commonly misquoted verse in the Bible. And sometimes, most, and most oftentimes misquoted in some of the worst situations that just brings more um, guilt and weight into a person's life. Let's read verse 13 closely again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I'm not even going to say the other misquoting, okay? I don't want to put anything in your head. But let's look at this real clearly. Verse 13 starts off with, No temptation is, over, is not overtaking that's not common to man. The first statement we can see from this, Temptation is common to mankind. 
all mankind, all humans experience temptation. You might experience something different than someone over on the cross this room. We might experience it in different ways, but ultimately, nothing's new. Temptation to sin is something that's existed for a long, long time. And all of mankind experiences temptation. Second point, God is faithful. So this verse isn't a focus on us. We've got to make sure this, this, the focus is on God. God is faithful. What does that mean? God has said that he's going to be our deliverer. That he's going to be with us. That he's going to provide for us. He'll keep his promises because he's faithful. But we go on. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. I think oftentimes what happens is we get stuck in, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But there's a whole last part of that verse. He will give you the way, provide the way of escape that you must, that you may be able to endure it. He's going to give you what you need to endure it. Now that doesn't mean he's going to take it away. Doesn't mean he's going to make it perfect. Make everything go away, all your problems, there's nothing going on. He will give you the way of escape to endure that temptation. Which I think most clearly is his word, right? His word, which we get to hold on to and cling. And then I think the other thing is, we can look in our life. Look at all of you who are sitting here. I know on the radio you can't look at each other. But those who are sitting together, you have your brothers and sisters in Christ. God has given you each other so that you can continue to share God's word to strengthen each other through temptation. He's given us the way of the saves that you may be able to endure it. And ultimately, it's only relying on that rock, the rock of Christ, through which we can endure anything. Any questions on that portion of the text, uh, scripture this morning? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, so, and just repeat the, the comment. I think we should, t- the comment is that we should take God as a just God seriously and not just look at him as a merciful God. I would agree. God is just, and we must not neglect that. And we see that throughout Scripture. Those who do neglect it do face serious consequences. They think, oh, God's just going to, you know, just let it go, slide down the road. He doesn't. Now, can we explain direct links between someone's sin and then some things that experience in this world? No. And this next reading where I get at the gospel makes that clear. We are not to draw conclusions between I did this sin, now I experienced this tragedy or this horrible thing in our life, therefore this is God punishing me because I didn't listen. That's not where we're going, but what you're saying is correct in that we need to recognize that God does punish sin. And God, or God does feel horrible against sin and he will punish sin. And the fact of the matter is that we experience sin in this world. That's a terrible thing. We shouldn't take it lightly. We shouldn't take any sin lightly because God feels seriously, uh, seriously against every kind of sin. So we're getting the challenge in our world today. There's like a ranking of sins, right? I mean, if I, if I maybe tell a lie here, it's way worse than if I were to actually murder someone. But in God's eyes, all sin is horrible. And all sin, desires, and all sin should be punished. Punished by death. Now, I must admit, with the sins in our world, yes, there are certain implications in our world. And one person once uh, told me about it. I, I like the way they put it, that um, relationships are broken in different ways by the different sins that are committed. So God feels the same against all sin. But if I should lie, I'm going to break a relationship differently than if I would murder that person. You know, the relationships can be broken to different levels and different extents, but that's a, humanly pers- a human perspective. So ultimately, God doesn't like anything. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, you're close. You're going to say what most people would call. Yes. Uh, Job is a good example of the fact that look at all the things that Job experienced, and yet God was with him, and God was enabling him to endure it. Right. I mean, God, and that's... The challenge, I think, is sometimes in our, our lives, we can't always see it, but we, we need to trust and have faith that he's there. And he will provide that way. And that even, especially as Christians, even should our lives lead to death, before we may like, look at the deliverance we have of eternal life. 
Not to just, you know, escape out there, but that God is with us no matter what. All right, let's look at the last reading. Okay, because the last one gets at some of the stuff I've already talked about um, and mentioned in part. Which again, attest to the work of those who put the lectionary together. <laughs> Spent much time in doing that. Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. I'll read those for us. Luke 13, 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Here ends our gospel for next week. So again, a little context because we're jumping around here. We get into the gospel according to Luke. And here we have Jesus speaking to the crowds. And if you, are, if, you're, if you go back and read through chapter 12, Jesus is speaking um, to crowds there. So chapter 13 is a continuance as he continues to speak to these crowds who are gathered around him. And in chapter 12, it especially gets at this concept of examining the signs in this critical time. But we'll go into that. I won't go into that now, but rather to see that there's um, very significant themes in our reading, th- chapter 13, of judgment and forgiveness. Judgment and forgiveness because time is... Important, but we'll get to that in a moment. So first, we look at the first five verses, because we have, in some ways, a, two natural sections, but they very much tie together. So verses one through five, Jesus is pointing out these different tragedies that happened. Okay, so you have the, the first one in which um, these Galileans who had suffered because of the punishment that, that or they had suffered because of what happened. In, in, the, in the world. And then the second one, you have this tower in Siloam that fell. Okay? But despite what the world's going to say, and even despite what some of the crowds were saying at that time, these tragedies, these things that happen, are not direct correlatives to the sin in their lives. Okay? So he brings this up. He said, um, some president at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So first, let's look at the context of what's going on there. I'm going to be really honest, in my reading, there's not a whole lot of resources on what happened. Not a lot of um, documentation on exactly what was happening. Now, the best explanation that the commentaries put together is that it was the time of the Passover. And so, this, sorry, this is a direct quote. At the time of the Passover, the lay people were allowed to sacrifice in the temple precincts. And at that time, Pilate violated holiness codes by sending troops into the temple to murder Galilean Jews while they were sacrificing lambs. And thus, there was mingling of blood. So that's a direct quote. I share that because it came right out of the commentaries. I believe that was out of the Concordia commentary series. But if you look at that as being one of the best explanations we have, ultimately, there were sacrifices going on, and then they came in and murdered Jews, so there's this mingling of blood, literally mingling of the blood of the sacrifices and the blood of the people who were murdered. And that would be an issue violating the laws that were set up within um, the sacrifices and the like. They're no longer being the pure sacrifices of the lambs that were given. So this mingling is a serious issue. And the people here are concerned about it. But they seem to be suggesting that what the Galileans are experiencing, the tragedy, the way that the Galileans are suffering, is a direct correlative to what happened there in the temple. Jesus is telling them, no, you're wrong. This is not a direct correlative to they sinned and therefore they suffered. But what does he say? He says, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Because if you're stuck in your sin, you're not turning your heart to God. You're not trusting in God. And if you're only stuck in sin, therefore you will perish. Because God says those who don't trust in him, those who are not having faith in him, only caring about their own sinful ways and only looking there... 
he'll perish. Sounds serious and harsh because, again, the theme of what today is, God feels seriously against sin. But we go on, he gives a second example. People seem to be suggesting that when this tower in Siloam fell and killed them, they're thinking that, again, here's a direct chloroform, and Jesus says, no, it's not. Okay? Now, if you look at these two examples, you can see a little bit of a difference. In the first example, there seems to be more temptation for the people to draw correlation. These certain Galileans were doing something horrible, and Galileans suffer. They're tempted to make this correlation. Jesus says, you can't draw the two together. But in the first example, you have the fact that there is sin in their lives, and there is also suffering. Okay? In the second example, you have more of, for lack of better terms, simple tragedy. Something just happened. More of a natural disaster. This tower fell and killed the people in Siloam. So then they're thinking, well, they must have done something wrong to then, therefore, deserve this and bring this upon themselves. So you have these two different cases, and in both of them, Jesus is making clear, it's not they who have done something specific that has led to their, uh, to their, to their suffering, to led to that punishment in that way. Not at all. Rather, he says, use these tragedies as a way to draw you nearer to the Lord. To draw you nearer to the reason that you need to trust in God. One, there's sin in this world. We need God. Two, there's sinful experiences of things in this world. There's simply just tragedies that happen in this world, and we need God. Without God, if we look around at all the terrible stuff that happens in this world, we are going to go to total and utter despair. Right now, if you could think about it in your own minds, think about all the horrible things that happen in this world. If we say it so often, look up, just turn on the news, right? Turn on your Facebook, whatever social media, whatever, talk to people. Tons of horrible things happening. Why do those things happen? Because there's sin in this world, but Jesus made it clear, not because those people specifically sinned. Okay? Think about the burden that you would bring upon someone, even upon yourself, if you were to say, well, I'm suffering. It's because I did this wrong. Well, was sin wrong? Yeah. But this is not a direct correlation. All right, I need to get to the last section here before, because I leave you hanging with Jesus. Uh, seems to be talking horribly about a fig tree. But if we look at this, now key here words, especially before we get anywhere more into this section, in verse 6, he told this parable. Okay, be clear that when parables, one of the biggest challenges with, with understanding parables is people will read it, and they'll try to take it and make a direct correlation to something. Making it this like uh, with allegorical or symbolic way of interpreting everything. We need to be careful not to do that. So let's look at this parable. Man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and there's no fruit. This fig tree is planted, and it's not bearing fruit. Now, what's the point of a tree, a fruit tree, a fig tree? Bear fruit. And yet it's not bearing any fruit. And so he came, and he sees it, he finds none. So he says to the vine dresser, the one taking care uh, of it, he says, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this tree. So it's not like he just planted this tree and it's like, okay, nothing happened. Funny story. I'm going to share this about my daughter because I can. I try not to share stories about my kids. But yesterday we were planting some, some flower uh, bulbs. I know, a little late in the season. But I'm planting flower bulbs. And my daughter says to me, she says, I think when we wake up tomorrow, it's going to be there. Yes, it will be there, but it'll still be in the ground. It will not be grown. It takes a little while. I share that because, so it's not like he just planted this. He's like, all right, where is it? No. Three years have gone past, and this tree is yet to produce fruit. Okay, find none. It says cut it down. Because simply speaking, in the gardening world, if you have a plant that is not yielding, is not growing, at some point you've got to take it down. We're trying to be respectful to God's creation, okay? Which we are, because at some point you have to pull up the things that are no longer growing and no longer producing. Then, um, he gets, talks to his vine dresser, he says, no, let it go. Let it go another year, and I'll put manure, I'll dig on it, I'll try, you know, so he's going to try to take care of it. Give it another year. And then it says, the share bear fruit, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. If it's still not bearing fruit, cut it down. And so we look at this. We see the seriousness that we can turn towards, and we see that um, God tells us we're to trust in him. We're to have faith, and we are to turn from our sinful ways and repent and go to him. But if we don't, we'll perish. 
The subtitle in most Bibles is, uh, right before that, is repent or perish. And then the parable of the barren fig tree. Ultimately, repent or perish. But look in the parable again. Now, this is not a direct correlation. One year, three years. Don't see it too specific. God doesn't give us, you only got three years. If you don't do it, then you're done. Okay? But God gives us the entire time on this earth to, to repent of our ways, to turn towards him. So we have time. We're here on this earth. But we never know when, this, when the day shall come. When will Christ return? I don't know. It could be in five minutes. could be not until I die at 80, 90 years old. Who knows? But the day I die, I pray that I would have faith. And that I would be trusting in God. And so the, the point, we get at this, the seriousness is to turn towards God. Don't put it off. Okay? Don't just live in your sin saying, hey, yeah, I'm good. I've got life here and now I'm going to live. And then someday I'll take care of that, that God stuff. Someday I'll turn towards God. I want to live right now because then later I'll do it. Jesus says, the time's now. Don't put it off. Any other questions or thoughts? I'm running pretty short on time, but that's good. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we come to you this morning and we are privileged to be able to study your word. As we do here in your word that you are a just God. You do punish sin. But Lord, we are forever thankful that you are also gracious. And that you have punished sin through your son, Jesus Christ. So that we could have life through him and be with you eternally. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts today and every single day to move us to repent, to turn towards you and trust more and more in you every single day. Lord, we pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen.